You are listening to another DX Talk. Delivering vital knowledge that empowers leaders to drive transformational change in their businesses. Brought to you by Quantum, facilitators of future-focused operating models that balance people, processes, and technology towards a new way of working. Welcome to DX Talks, episode three of season two. My name is Russell and I am your host. The title of today's episode is the New Zealand AI Landscape. And joining us today to help explore that topic is Professor James McLaurin from the University of Otago. James is a professor of philosophy. He is the co-director for the University of Otago Center for AI and Public Policy. And he is a principal investigator for the Artificial Intelligence and Law in New Zealand project. James, welcome. Thanks, Russell. Great to be here. James, do you want to perhaps kick us off with a little bit of an intro about yourself, you know, what you do at Otago and potentially what your interest is in artificial intelligence in New Zealand? Sure. I trained as a philosopher of science, so I'm particularly interested in how science works, how we use science, um, how we distill science into public policy, how we commercialise it, all those sorts of things. I do lots and lots of things at the University of Otago, as well as teaching and researching. I, I'm the university's public orator. There are <laughs> lots and lots of little jobs that people have at universities. We we got interested in, in uh, or I got interested in AI, partly because I've got an old friend who's a computer scientist who said, look, we need more voices talking about these issues. But it really is a really important time in the development of this technology. There's very little regulation. We're just at the point where a lot of businesses are now calling for regulation because they want certainty about how technologies are going to be regulated and uh, standards and all this sort of thing. So it's a, it's a great time to be trying to help the public, I think, and government businesses, stakeholders in general, make sense of this because it's it's hard to make sense of, I think, the, the move to AI. It's a very big thing. I think there's already a couple of really interesting things in that intro from you. And, and to help give some people some context, I did mention that you're the co-director for the University of Otago's Centre for AI and Public Policy. So it'd be really interesting to hear, you know, what, from your perspective, what is the role of that centre and what do you hope to achieve? We're coming it in a slightly roundabout way. We just started our first course at the university or next year we'll run our first course at the university on kind of social, ethical, legal aspects of artificial intelligence. I put out a call for parts of the university that, that were interested in this and it was a forest of hands. There, there are just so many parts in the university where people either are interested in how we're deploying this, how we're commercializing it, how it's working in science, how it's working in health, all these sorts of things, economic aspects, history, you name it. Everybody wants a, wants a piece of this. And, and actually, you know, one thing that we found is that the sort of questions that we're raising are ones that are really, really interdisciplinary. So we have lots of computer scientists, of course, in the center, but we have economists and psychologists and philosophers and sociologists and politics specialists, all sorts of people. So really the idea, I mean, the idea of centers in general is to draw people together, but this one above all, there's a huge need for lots of people, lots of perspectives in the room, people to be able to sit in the room, put their hand up and say, look, we're all looking at this this way. How about we look at it this, this other way? Maybe we could see, see a way to solve the problem. That leads into what I wanted to be my next question, which you made another comment before that you said more voices are, are talking about the issues that are associated with AI. So one of the perspectives which I currently hold is that AI is not being talked about enough or the way it needs to be at a societal level. And I sort of mean that as a very as a personal view. I sort of mean that as a quite an encompassing term. I, I don't believe it's being talked enough about by businesses. I think there's a lot of people talking about what they could do with it, 
I don't think there's enough people talking about the potential ethical you know, privacy issues or the inclusiveness issues. Do you share that view? And I certainly agree that the public don't understand this well enough. Uh, and, and by the public, I, I guess I mean everybody, you know, who's not kind of technically involved in this area. It's a very new technology. It's progressing very quickly. What you thought it could do last year isn't what it's going to be able to do next year. It, it's all that sort of thing. So I think it's, it's absolutely essential that we get some voices out there that are trying to get people to recognise the rapidity of this change and also the, the scope, you know, the possibility for, for value. AI is going to be able to do brilliant things but it's very new and very powerful. And anything that's very powerful has lots of risks with it. And the danger is that we just get driven by the news cycle. So, you know, somebody makes a mistake and we've had lots of these in New Zealand, Immigration New Zealand, um, uh, Ministry for Social Development, Internal Affairs, all sorts of people have suddenly found themselves in the, in the gun. Um, in the UK, they call this the red top problem because the uh, newspapers with the red banners are the ones that kind of shout from the headlines. We were using it to predict who we should let out of jail. And we do use it for that purpose, you know, when, uh, when we're doing probation hearings and we let somebody out and they committed a terrible crime. So we have to stop. And, you know, so the danger is that when you are driven by the news cycle like that, that you, you can lose value really quickly. You only need one... Fukushima, and all of a sudden, lots of people don't want to use nuclear power. Germany stopped using nuclear power, just turned the whole thing off after Fukushima, and now suddenly their carbon emissions are much higher than other comparable countries because they got panicked. And, and that's what happens when you, when you have you know, the news cycle pushing you along. So we need us to push us along, and that means lots of education. And people aren't getting it in schools. There's a really unfortunate view that young people are digital natives. They know all about all this stuff. Well, you know, sure, they're good at using, you know, Facebook and Google and da, da, da. That doesn't mean they know how it works. And it doesn't mean that they know about, you know, the rare cases where, where something terrible happens. Yeah, I think the other side, I agree with what you said, the other side of that is I think in general we are a, a risk aversion society, right? And governments are about how do we prevent, how do we prevent loss? How do we, how do we not be the government that is responsible for the, the Fukushima or, you know, if you're in a, a corporate or, or some kind of organizational entity, you don't want to be the person in a leadership position that caused that, that kind of loss. It's not an, a, not an achievement that you put on your CV. So I think at this point, in, we've been talking about this word AI and that's a reasonably nondescript word. And so if I segue for a second, uh, and one of the big reasons that we're actually talking to you today is that you have been a principal investigator on two very impactful papers. Uh, the titles of those papers are the government use of artificial intelligence in New Zealand. And the second one is the impact of artificial intelligence on jobs and work in New Zealand. And it's worth noting at this point that these papers were funded as part of the artificial intelligence and law project in New Zealand and by the New Zealand Law Society. And um, that's Law Foundation, not Law Society. They're quite my, different things. My bad. Thank <laughs> you for, uh, yep, thank you for correcting that. And I think one of the reasons I think these papers are so impactful is that they're one of the few, there's plenty of research around that talks about AI in a global context, but these are two of the most comprehensive papers I've seen that actually speak about AI in a, in a New Zealand geographic context, which is insightful and powerful. So I think as part of sort of starting to delve into those papers, do you want to talk to us around how you've defined AI? Because I think that gives some context to the conversation we're having today, as well as leading into the papers. Sure. It, it's not an easy thing to define. It's really a group of technologies. 
the way we think about AI has changed quite a lot over the years. If you'd been, if you'd asked somebody in 1980, they'd really be thinking about a very different thing than we're thinking about now. I think the the most important things to understand about AI now is that we've moved around, away from what they call expert systems. So expert systems, you work out some domain, you work out a bunch of rules that you want the AI to follow, and you just program the rules in. And so anything the AI did, you, you really programmed into it. You get lots of control over it. Uh, we've moved away from that to AI that is statistically based, so it doesn't use kind of hard-edged rules, but crucially that learns. So what we do now is that we build a deep learning system and we point it at lots and lots of data. So if you're trying to develop an autonomous car, then you need lots and lots of data from cars driving on the road. You don't ever write code that says, if there's somebody in front of the car, stop the car. You just rely on the fact that all the, the data that you give the program, when it's averaged out, means that the car stops when there's somebody in front of the car. So it's, it, that way of doing things is much, much more powerful. Expert systems are hard to write and expensive, don't work very well. The deep learning approach that everybody's using now is extraordinarily powerful. You know, lots and lots of examples that people have heard of. Systems like DeepMind that learn to play chess in a day in a way that could beat a good human player without ever having been told the rules of chess. So it just found the patterns and started working. The, the strength of this is that you can apply it in lots and lots of different domains. And that's what we're getting now. Um, so it's good both for making sort of general predictions about the future, just as uh, Google predicts what you want to know, Amazon predicts which book you'll like, all this sort of thing. Uh, so what we call recommender engines, or if you're in government or business and you're worried about things that might happen in the future that you don't want to happen, predictive risk models, those sorts of things. But it's also you know, really good at interfacing with robotics in particular. I guess that's, yeah, that's the best way uh, to think about AI. Contextually, we're going to wind up talking about predictive analytics a lot, but reiterating what you've said earlier, AI is that broad context of technologies. Yes, it's predictive analytics. Yes, it's machine learning, but you're stepping into conversational technologies as well, like natural language processing, yeah, yeah, yeah. sentiment analysis, and, and the spectrum. You know, the spectrum goes on. So I guess my encouragement to anyone listening to this is please keep that in mind as we're sort of talking through this, this conversation. Do you want to, those two papers, they're comprehensive. So for anyone, yep. I'll mention this again at the end. Uh, James has very kindly given us some links to these papers, so they're freely available to download. Uh, and I would I'd really encourage you to, to grab them and take advantage of them. The summaries by themselves are, are pretty solid evening reading um, without even getting into these papers. The, there's a, a huge breadth of topics and a, and a great detail of information there. But do you want to give us an overview of those papers, James, and what the impetus was for the research projects that created them? Sure. We started off, we were interested in just doing some work about social, legal, ethical aspects of the use of artificial intelligence. So we went around looking at domains that we could work in. We chose government use of AI initially because it was easier than commercial use of AI, because what government does by default is open and what business does by default is closed. Now, neither of these things are true across the board, but we thought it would be easier to get information about what government was doing with AI and then it would be to, you know, rock up to large commercial entities and say, show us your algorithms. Um, I, th I think that was the right approach. Conversely, with the jobs and work one, 
we just decided that we would look at the domain where we thought there was the most benefit on the one hand and where the risks were highest on the other hand. And that turns out to be jobs and work. So that's why we chose the two domains, just to give you a really kind of quick run through of each of the reports or just broadly the areas that we talk about in each of the reports. In talking about government, we were interested in how much government uses AI And we very quickly found out that New Zealand government uses AI in lots of contexts, much more than many other governments do, in the ways that government was using AI, how it was kind of mitigating risks and ensuring that it got full value. Because as you'll know in the AI space, in a sense, everybody's using AI. When you fire up Google, you're using AI. The question isn't whether you're using it, it's whether you're using it well, whether you're getting benefit out of it. So how does government get benefit out of it? How is government regulating itself to try and ensure that it does a good job, that we don't end up with these kind of shouty stories in the newspaper that means everybody wants to close it down, stop us using it for for important purposes? You know, we've been interested in issues with AI that really occur everywhere. How do we control it? How It's not very transparent. Um, The sort of programs that we write now are not ones where if I showed you the code, it would mean anything to you. It wouldn't mean anything to me. I mean, deep learning systems are just like that. So how do we, you know, how do we teach people how it works? How do we give people an idea of what good AI is? Because as a consumer or as a citizen, you want to be able to know, you know, what a good use of it is. Things like risks to do with bias. I mean, obviously, we are biased in the way we make decisions. Turns out AI is too, not in the same way, but AI bias is, is a real risk. Privacy, liability, autonomy, all those sorts of things. We were very aware that New Zealand doesn't, has no specific regulations for AI. It still doesn't. We now have some guidelines. We now have a government audit of AI, which we pushed for, which was fantastic. And we helped Stats New Zealand develop their principles for safe and effective use of data and analytics. So that's kind of the broad sweep of the government and AI one. The jobs- On that as well, I I think um, that audit, it uh, it was in your paper, I think it found, so that was 50 or 59 algorithms across the country. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, here's the thing. Government went out to arms of government and said, tell us what you're doing. And arms of government uh, took this to mean, give us an example of what you're doing. So for example, in health, they list one, which is the algorithm that decides the order in which people get elective surgery. But actually, DHBs use AI all the time for all sorts of purposes. So in the algorithmic assessment report, there's not a large sort of, it doesn't cover everything. It only covers operational use, doesn't cover strategic use. So I wouldn't take this to be a kind of, this is how much is going on. It does give you an idea of the breadth and the breadth is really extraordinary as, as you'll know, having looked at the report. I think that's an interesting point because some of those examples, they're, they're the proprietary examples. Like we've developed proprietary capability using the health example to determine how elective surgeries are prioritized, but it doesn't necessarily start to determine the because there's, there's different ways people might be using AI. As an, use Google as an example, and that's not a great example, but there's potentially applications that are being used in businesses that are, are underpinned by machine learning or some kind of AI capability that, that is being used indirectly. And so that you're right, that audit doesn't capture the indirect use of AI through, say, third-party products. No, and it doesn't 
you know, it doesn't capture business rules that surround AI, the way that people developed AI, thing, things like that. For example, you might uh, deploy some AI that was used in one context and use it in another context. So you might be interested in, you know, which tenants are going to be reliable? Who do you want to, you know, have in your flat? Now, you might not have data that tells you exactly that, but you might have data to do with, for example, creditworthiness. And so you might decide that you'll use that algorithm as an indication of whether or not these people are going to be good tenants. That might even be reliable. It might be, but it might not be. And you, as somebody purchasing the algorithm, might not know that it's got this kind of odd history to it. In general, it's quite difficult to assess the accuracy of AI. It's not just a kind of single percentage score. You know, it's how many false positives does it give? How many false negatives does it give? You know, what are the false positives and false negatives look like? Are they things that Areas that it's easy to trap and that we can fix, or is it really, you know, things that, you know, might genuinely harm people, those sorts of things. So just getting people in a position where they can make a decent judgment about whether or not the AI is going to do it. You might not care if it does exactly what people do. You might not mind if it's not exactly as accurate as people, but you better know how accurate it is and you better have a good idea of what it's going to do. And th those are the sort of challenging things. I think in any use of, of AI, it's, it's just hard to assess. Yeah, and creating that transparency, both for the user and the provisioner of that AI around when it isn't necessarily being completely accurate uh, for whatever reason. You bet. Allowing people to make informed decisions from there around what that means for them or how they will respond to that. Yeah, I yeah. agree. And it's very challenging for operators. You know, you're sitting there and uh, somebody bought a black box and it's sitting in the corner. It tells you the right answer is this. You don't agree with it. What are you going to do? I think that's, that's something people can really take when you are buying technologies that are, inverted commas, underpinned by AI is what is the AI that it's underpinned by and how does it work? Because if, it's you, if you are buying a technology that supposedly works better because it's using AI to take some of the human, human work out, you want to know exactly everything you've been talking about. How will this know when it's not accurate? If it identifies a point where it's not accurate, how will it alert my staff or my people? Because if you're in situations where you're processing people's data, especially private data, yeah, that, that's where, and provisioning services with it, that's where you can start running into some quite significant risks, both ethically and commercially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can, I mean, you can make some reasonable judgments when you think about, for example, business models. If somebody's offering you some AI for free, then you should you should be very cautious about, you know, <laughs> thinking about what it's doing. So for example, yeah. Office 365 offers to provide users of Office 365 a report on the way their work is going through the week. But what it's really doing is reporting on how much you engage with Microsoft software. Because Microsoft wants to tell users this, you know, encourage people to do it more. But actually that as a as an employer, that might not be what you're interested in. So you really got to know what the, you know, what the thing is doing. And what the product is, and to, to extend what you said a little bit, I don't want to mention any brand names, certain search algorithms, uh, you know, that's that's AI. And if you you use that, you, you are the product because you're, you're being, you, you as a person are being sold to advertisers. And it's not just search engines, there's a number of platforms around. It is, that's a wise piece of advice to understand what the, what the product is and chances are if it's free, you're probably it. Yeah, I mean, crucially, people think that the, the worry there is that you're kind of giving away something and you might not know you're giving it away. Well, that's that's true. But actually, the real worry is that the person who designed the algorithm isn't designing it for you. 
they're designing it for their, for their customer, who is probably an advertiser. Um, and, and hence, it very likely isn't doing what you would really want it to do if it was being designed for you. That's, that's the risk. I also think this is a good example, and you sort of said earlier on, you know, we're not having these conversations we're not having, and I think this is a good example of an aspect of those conversations. And another comment you made was, you know, we refer to young people as digital natives. My personal observation is particularly digital natives who've grown up using this more freely, give away themselves digitally than necessarily older generations who, who haven't grown up. They're, what I mean by that, they're, they're, they're a lot quicker to go, yes, I'll accept those terms to get the functionality. You know, and that's, again, going back to one of your points, this is probably one of the areas where there's an opportunity for education to start coming in around what is the actual exchange when you accept those terms to use that product underpinned by AI. I agree, and I can tell you as somebody who deals with hundreds of young people every year whom I teach, it might be that in general, young people are reasonably tech savvy, but the difference between the most tech savvy and the least tech savvy is really big. Yeah. So you've, you've still got young people there who are completely flummoxed by technology or, you know, have this view that technology doesn't like me. Things always go wrong when I use this. So lots of people don't, don't jump in the right direction. Don't make good judgments, as you, as you rightly point out. It's hard to know what they, what their good judgments to make are when you're using a technology that your parents didn't use that maybe your teachers don't really understand when you're at school you know where do you where do you learn what are good strategies from you, you made a comment to me offline which i hopefully i get this right but one of the comments that you made to me was that the new zealand government has a high use of ai relative to other governments around the world and that we're actually pretty effective at it and i think you've covered off the piece around the fact that we do have a high use within government as a country but what are the factors that you believe make us as a country more effective at how we're applying it relative to other countries? Actually, part of the answer to this is why we use it a lot, because we use it a lot because there was a policy direction that started out actually by the last government um, called social investment. And the thought was that if we can build really good predictive models of uh, the effects of you know, various types of um, support for people, then we can support people more efficiently. We can detect the people who really need the support from the people who don't, all this sort of thing. So AI and government was doing something. It wasn't just you know, being provided because somebody said, hey, do you want it? It was doing something in a policy sense. So it was important that it was accurate, that it was something that was going to be used in lots of operational contexts, and hence people had to understand it, and you had to be upfront with um, the public about how it's being used. Most arms of government are pretty good at that. It's, you know, nothing's perfect, but most arms of government are, are pretty good at that. What government in New Zealand does that's good, I think, is that it develops in the right sort of way. It doesn't wait for somebody to knock on the door. It thinks, you know, what are our, what are, you know, what are my KPIs in this industry? What am I trying to do right now? Now, which of these things could you plausibly use AI for? And now how am I going to get the AI? Who will I, you know, go to? And by and large, government has had algorithms designed for it rather than just buying things off the shelf, which is infinitely better. It's, you know, it's led by what it's trying to do. It's not led by the idea, oh, look, we've got a lot of data. What could we predict with this data? You know, hey, we could build, build an algorithm because we've got lots of data. Lots of people kind of start out from that end. And I, you know, that's not a way to get value. So I, I think, you know, it's, some of this is just luck. I think it's just path dependent that um, the parts of government started doing this first 
did it pretty well. They, New Zealand government is small enough that they passed on to mates in other places what they were doing. Um, we also had some disasters. You know, we had some very bad news stories in the paper, but various arms of government learned what to do in the face of disaster. So if people have got time to have a glance at our reports, the one on government use, we talk about a really set, a set of business rules called the, the FRAY, the Privacy, Human Rights and Ethics Framework that was developed by the Ministry for Social Development after it got into terrible trouble, after it developed an algorithm that was designed to detect children at risk, actually, which I think was not badly designed, the minister didn't know what it was for. The minister got doorstepped by a newspaper. All of a sudden, it got closed down. It's actually used overseas, used in the United States. We don't use it in New Zealand because we didn't cover off. You know, what are we trying to do with it? How are we going to mitigate the risks? What's its impact? I mean, these are really just kind of impact assessment reports. And I know that sounds like a very government thing to do, but actually it's the same in business. You know, what are, what are they going to be the effects on our customers? What are they what are going to be the effects on other stakeholders? What could go wrong? What are we trying to get out of this? Those sorts of things. So I think government does that really well in New Zealand. In other countries, the United States being a case in point, they have bought algorithms, again, mentioning no names, where they didn't know how reliable the algorithm was, how accurate it was. They hadn't investigated bias, and there are famous cases of algorithms, you know, only recommending men for high paid jobs, recommending that black people get out of jail less often than white people. I mean, all sorts of things that, you know, if you said them at the start, this is what we want the algorithm to do, everyone's, you're mad, but actually that's the algorithm that they deployed because they didn't really know what they were doing. So, you know, we haven't done that. They haven't gone down that route. I think there's some really interesting stuff here around. So one of my questions, my next question was going to be what what could the private sector take from how New Zealand government is approaching AI? And three of the things I noted down, I really liked the last one, but the first one, the first two I think are pretty common. And the first one is understand what, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? You know, don't don't start, as you said, don't start from the perspective of data or let's go and get a particular technology, understand what you're trying to solve for your business. The the second, which is probably the second side of that coin, is is be led by the problem you're trying to solve, um, which I guess is saying build a round peg for a round hole. And the third one, which I really liked, and I think because you basically got two scenarios which you've identified. One is that you build something yourself that comes with a certain level of investment, depending on what you're building. Or the other is go and try and find an off the off the shelf solution, which may or may not have some capacity for personalization, for lack of a better word, or customization. But the the really interesting one there is is test for bias inside your context and understand as a result, number one, do biases exist? And as a result of those biases, what, what are the potential you know, ethical or commercial risks that you might be exposing the business to? And are those acceptable on whatever basis? Yeah, they, they may Absolutely. well be. Rather than personalization, we often think about localization. So you buy, I don't know, PredPol, predictive policing algorithm, and but it's it, it's trained on lots of data, really powerful. But the data was in Chicago. I'm going to use it in Invercargill. Is how do yeah. I know that's going to work? So you know, localization is is really crucial. I think. I think that's a really awesome. That's a great example around that that testing piece, right? Yeah, and, and again, so much more that you've said around understanding what what's developed it. Yeah, you know, because the answer it gives you is contextual to the data 
the data that it was trained on or any given algorithm. And yeah, so know what the data set was, know where it was trained, try and get information about, you know, how well it was trained. Also try and get a kind of plain English description of the sort of data that's being used. Really famous case in, in the UK of an insurance company that did a study of which people were most likely to claim on their insurance. Thought they'd use AI for it. They had a whole lot of data. Turned out the data they had was about supermarket shopping. So what they found at the end was that the best predictor of people that are not likely to claim on their insurance is that those people buy fresh fennel. Fine. <laughs> Why? Why is that true? So if that's all you know, you know, you're really trusting in the AI to be, as it were, making the right judgments, making judgments based on factors that you would make judgments based on. Now, obviously, you wouldn't make judgments based on fennel. But the, the problem is that there are lots of, you know, what we call proxy data. So in New Zealand, there are all sorts of judgments that you cannot make. For example, in, in uh, employment relationships, the Bill of Rights Act says that you can't rely on ethnicity and gender and age and all sorts of things like that. Postcodes are a really good proxy for ethnicity. And hence, if the, if the algorithm is using postcodes, it might actually be making judgments about ethnicity. If your algorithm is using fennel, you've got no idea what judgments it's, you know, how it's making its judgments. And you really mostly ought to know. If, it, if it's a very low risk, you know, if it's Netflix recommending movies to me, doesn't matter. If it's bank loans, if it's, you know, something that affects people's lives, like you really need to know where the data is coming from and, and how it's being used. Yeah, and that's probably a good example of a, you know, to businesses where there are instances where you can be, you can apply less scrutiny to AI because the, there isn't an ethical, a significant ethical commercial brand risk, anything like that. And chances are any kind of use case which offers significant potential revenue gain and or significant benefit or significant customer experience impact, which are the ones you're really after, are probably going to carry those kinds of risks. The other interesting point I'd make, I fully agree with what you've said, in going back to technologies which are underpinned by proprietary capability, they're probably unlikely to be fully transparent, partly because that's the secret source of their product. They've invested in developing this and they're trying to be careful around protecting that proprietary knowledge to stay ahead of their own competitor set. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. What are some of the policies that you believe we need to develop further as a country to make the use of AI productive as well as protect our society at the same time and sort of cultivate more use? Sure. I think in a way policies that help institutions and companies, you know, not to kind of get into hot water without, without realizing that they're doing so. So we recommended to government that there be a register of government algorithms, not just the 50 something that are mentioned in the algorithmic assessment report, but everything that's being used in an operational way that is that people are meeting and there be somebody that looks at them and assesses their their accuracy, their reliability, how they're being controlled. You know, there's this big thing that if we have a human in the loop, then that's going to be okay, you know, because a, a human will stop anything terrible happening. Increasingly, what we're discovering is that the sort of AI we can build is so much more capable than humans at particular tasks that humans can't supervise it. 
the judgments they make wouldn't be as good when you put a human in the loop. They, the AI, you degrade the performance of the AI. So how we're, how we're controlling it, you know, all those sorts of things. So, and we think that in the commercial space, something like this is going to be, I think, of value to companies. In, you know, and it's going to require adaptation. So I was talking to David Clark the other day, who's in charge of the, the digital council and all things digital now. And we were talking about product labeling. So if you go into a supermarket and you buy a chocolate bar, it will tell you on the back of the bar how much sugar there is in it. It'll tell you what it's going to do to your waistline uh, because that's what, what people care about. If you buy a heater, that says it's internet aware, you can control it from your phone. That sounds great. What's it doing with that data? Is it just, you know, is the data just on your phone? Is somebody else using it? Are they packaging up and selling it to some third party? You know, are there, are there risks? Could people hack into it and work out whether you like your, your house warm or perhaps more importantly, whether you're at home right now? You know, so we just, we don't have any labeling regimes for things like this. You don't want them for everything. You don't want them to be onerous. But on the other hand, you want good companies that provide good products to be able to say, look, our product meets the standards. You know, this is a, a seatbelt that will protect you if you're in a crash, those sorts of things. So I, I think something like that is undoubtedly coming in New Zealand. One of the problems is that every sector of the economy, every industry is so different from every other one. So it's not you know, one big AI law. It's lots and lots of little changes. For example, we have health and safety rules about uh, use of robots. But we built those rules when robots were like car assembly robots, vast things that you could fence off. They were in that part of the factory. They weren't near any people. And the main thing was not to let people go near them. But now, of course, we've got robots that people want to work with or that we want people to work with so-called co-robots collaborative robots so you know this idea that you can sort of fence off the technology isn't true anymore so we need to there's a whole bunch of regulation that needs to be updated some of this is just about education i mean labeling regimes are really in a way about education so i think you know there's a there's a long road ahead i think for people in business being aware of the sort of regulations that um, are coming in in other countries. And I have to say, everybody is kind of behind in doing this, but everybody is thinking about doing it. You know, that stuff is definitely happening with jobs and work. I think we're in a similar domain. We haven't talked much about that, um, that arm of this project. But increasingly, we are getting into a position where AI is monitoring people's performance. You know, it can look over your shoulders every minute in a way that your boss couldn't. In some contexts, you don't care about that. In other contexts, you might care about that. We're using AI to assess who we employ. As I noted before, <laughs> that can go terribly wrong, but it can also be very powerful. So this kind of algorithmic management, algorithmic surveillance. So the, the employment relationship is being changed a little. But the really bigger picture story and the thing that you know when I talk about it to my students you could hear a pin drop <laughs> and when you're a lecturer you like those things it is jobs and work what it's what AI is going to do to New Zealand as a country what we can get out of it it's after all a, a form of automation 
it is designed to be labor saving. It is designed to be efficiency, uh, efficiency enhancing. And it's really good at those things. It will do those things. So there's a lot of profit to be made. So in the long run, we think that it will make New Zealand more productive. It will increase our income. But in the short term, lots of transition. Transition for companies, you know, if you're a legacy automaker at the moment, you're trying to compete with Tesla, good luck, you know, because they, they don't have to translate what they do from an old um, internal combustion engine model to something new. They just, they're just a new electric car maker. So lots of transition costs in lots of parts in the economy and just a lot of uncertainty. One of the things that we knew going into the jobs and work part of this project was that there were a million and one predictions about how many jobs are going to disappear, how many people will be unemployed. It didn't take us long to realize that none of these are really worth much. It's just not a very predictable thing. It might be in, you know, three years, maybe five years. It's not 10 years out. It's not 20 years out. There's, there's too many things that, that uh, you need to predict. You need to predict scientific progress for starters, and that's just not predictable. You need to predict, you know, commercialization, how many things you're going to be able to make sort of economically. You can build a prototype, but you can't make it cheap enough that anybody will buy it. You know, there's all sorts of factors that just aren't very predictable. And hence, we need to be able to think about a variety of scenarios that New Zealand might meet. So in our the jobs and work report, we give a bunch of scenarios that in a sense, we're not going to meet any of them in a pure sense. We're going to meet all of them, but people are going to meet different ones. Yeah. AI might make us more productive. It, it will make lots of people more productive, but it will displace some people. We know that. Now, it might just displace people into other AI work that is high value, high paid. It might displace people into low value work. So there's an upside. There's plenty of upside, but the downside risk is that lots of people end up making coffee for one another. And a relatively small number of people have good high paid jobs. The other question is, where does the profit land from artificial intelligence? At the moment, the big successes are being made by the companies that have vast amounts of data. Those aren't New Zealand companies by and large. So, you know, if you go into this and somebody's, you know, telling you they've, they've got AI that, that does this. To give you an example, just to, just to use Tesla because it's, it's an example that we know lots about. They are training their autonomous vehicle algorithm on a data set of 20 billion miles of driving. The next company down the tree is a company called Waymo, which is owned by Google. They have a database of 20 million miles of driving and everybody else has less. So they're three orders of magnitude lower than Tesla and everybody else is worse off. So again, you're a legacy automaker, you're putting, you know, special co-pilot in, you know, AI in your car, your chance of competing with the data monopoly yeah. is really tiny. That's the reason why really there's only one internet search algorithm, why really there's only one thing like Facebook. So there's a bunch of areas in AI that are like that. So the big question for countries like New Zealand, how do we get value out of this? Are there niches we can get into? Can we just import AI and use it well? Because those companies are hard to tax. So if they're getting lots of the profit, we're not going to see much of it in New Zealand. Can we invest in those companies, get the profits that way?
Um, so lots of questions like that, I think, for New Zealand. I think that's, I mean, you've, you've spoken about that in some detail. That, that's one of the more exciting aspects of the second paper for me. It was what are those large-scale adoption scenarios? And as a result of those scenarios, what is the impact they will have on the future of work for individuals? And what are the choices that we're going to face as a country, both at a societal level, at an economical level, and at a personal level? It's a, it's a fascinating conversation, which probably starts to lead us into our conclusion. And we've talked about two papers today, which are addressing a significant topic in terms of their breadth and the significance on us as, a, as I said before, a society and an economy. And we're certainly not going to do any justice to the, that conversation in, in this podcast in terms of the time we have today. So you were very kindly agreed to present at a virtual event with us. Do you want to maybe give us some key points on the topics that you really want to get into as part of that event and share with the audience? Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, to me, I think the, the jobs and work thing is very pressing for New Zealand. So a few things. One is, you know, what is it that we really need the populace to know, and indeed everybody to know about AI that will help them make good decisions? What sort of adaptations could we make as a society? We're a little country, we can't regulate things like Google, we can't really tax them very effectively. What can we do? And actually, there are lots of strategies, I think, that we can undertake. So, so I think that would be really valuable for people. I think maybe it's hard to know how much people know, but, but I think from the government use one, just kind of covering off, you know, what does success look like and what happens when things go wrong? Just understanding that when AI makes mistakes, they don't tend to look like the mistakes that humans make. So, you know, one of the issues at the moment, we're, we're trying to work out what are we going to do when there are level five autonomous cars, no steering wheels. We don't, do we, do we get them to sit a driving test? No, we don't. When they make mistakes, they aren't going to look like the mistakes that you and I make. And hence, newspapers papers are going to say, this was a terrible accident. But they will almost certainly be safer than humans driving. So understanding that dynamic of kind of nature and modes of success and failure, it sounds, sounds a bit abstract, but, but I really think that's important for people to get their head around. I agree. The other thing I'd add at this point is the there'll be plenty of time for questions and a, a very large segment of this event will be audience-led in terms of the questions that are coming forward and therefore the discussion that we can have. So we do intend for this to be highly interactive. If you're interested, we're going to be streaming this live. Um, it's accessible, I'll say this as well, sorry, it's accessible only if you are within New Zealand or Australia. The date is August 26th and it will be from 4 to 6 p.m. New Zealand Standard Time. Don't worry if you miss those details. We're going to drop a, a link to the registration page into the show notes for the podcast or into the comments section if you're watching this on YouTube. So go down and have a look for that link. Access to the link, sorry, access to the event, and I'll just put this out there now. It's by donation. And all funds raised are going to be going to the four-day week, which is a not-for-profit community platform. And it was established for people interested in supporting the idea uh, of a four-day week as the, as part of the future of work. Um, it's a cause that's been nominated by James. And as I said before, we'll put a link to the event in the show notes, but I'll also put a link to that four-day week website. And it's certainly one, I, I think, uh, if it sounds a bit random, that you know, I mentioned before that as a country and a society, we're going to face some choices. And as we get into that topic a bit more, I, I think why that cause has been chosen will become a little bit more relevant. By way of wrapping up, normally 
a lot of the guests we have are a bit more domain specific and we might ask for say three pieces of advice. I'm not sure that's kind of relevant in this case, but if I was to ask you for three things, you know, whether that's questions you think the audience should be asking themselves or thinking about, or, or maybe it is three pieces of advice. Are there three things that you, three messages you really want to give our listeners in the context of AI? Do you really know what it is? When you look at what you do day to day, can, do you have a good sense of when you're using it? I think that's a really good starting point for people just to get a sense of, uh, of what it is. Second, I think, you know, in your work, what do you think it could do? What's the kind of number one use case for you? And what are your hopes for it? I think that's valuable as well. Um, second is a, a kind of philosopherish question, you know, philosopherish answer, because I've got to give one of those. So AI is, as I said before, it's, it's designed to be labor-saving. It's designed to do things that we do by thinking. And hence, it, it is going to take some work for, from some people. How do you feel about that? Would you be happy to work less? Would you be happy if the world was such that people didn't have so much work to do? If not, why not? I really like those questions. And if I extend what you've said with two more, I think what I encourage everyone to do is to start learning around you know, what AI is and what definition do you want to put on AI and understanding for yourself what it can do. Because I think you, know, you talked about use cases in our jobs or in our businesses, but I think before we get there, we've got to form, we've got to educate ourselves on on where we think the technology is at and what we think is practically possible. The other thing I'd say, if I come back to your last comment, is whether, if you're listening to this, whether you as an individual might be impacted in a displacement seat. Let's assume that you're not, but people will be. And how, as a society, I think the question becomes, how do we want to respond as individual organisations? And how do we want to respond as a society to the possibility of people being impacted? because we're in a unique position now. Whereas if we start asking that now, we can go, how could we help people not be impacted? How could we, how could we put a plan in place to help people position themselves to grow as part of that transition and part of that inverted commas AI journey? Yeah, that's a great comment. And actually I won't talk about it now, but, but maybe uh, in the event, I'll give people some examples of impact because sometimes impact is really positive. Sometimes it's yes. really negative really hard to predict, you know, what it's going to be like in some industry five years, 10 years down the track. Um, so, so I think this question about, you know, is it going to affect you and will it be a good thing or a bad thing? I, I, I would uh, keep your powder dry on that one. Yeah. And you, you make a good point though, that there will be positive and negative impacts. And I think the thing we have to be thinking about is what are those possibilities and how do we position ourselves at all levels, right? Individual individual organization communities society country how do we position ourselves to make sure it's on the on the good side um so that said as i said one last time we are talking at this event james is, is presenting at the event it will be highly audience-led it's on august 26th and the the registration link will be available in the, the show notes for this podcast james as a final wrap up if anyone is interested in reaching out to you whereabouts can they find you uh, they could just search for James McLaurin at the University of Otago. They will find yeah, it. It comes up. To make it easy, I'll drop a link to your profile, your University of Otago profile page into the show notes as well. Yes, so or at least tell people how to spell my name. Otherwise, you're lost. It's, it's unspellable. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> absolutely. 
we've talked quite extensively about two papers. Um, as I said, those will also be dropped into the show notes. James has given me some specific links for them. I'd encourage you to download them and, and have a look. Even if you don't read the whole things, like at least have a look at the summary. There's a lot of information just in the summaries. But especially if you think you might register for the event, I'd really encourage you to download those papers first and allow that to shape your thinking before you hear James talk and, and before you have an opportunity to ask James some questions directly. So all of that said, James, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate your knowledge, your expertise, and, and the insight you've shared with us. And we very much look forward to hearing more from you on August 26th. You're very welcome, Russell. See you soon. Cheers. Good night. You were listening to another DX Talk, brought to you by Quantum, the future-focused pioneers for a new way of working. To drive change in your operating model through automation, or to subscribe for more episodes, visit quantin.co.nz.